Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. once again and welcome back to My 70s TV Childhood. We're coming to you a little later than expected for this episode as we've had a couple of technical issues this week so I hope it's been worth waiting for. In the UK this week we've had a major national event with the death of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, the husband of Queen Elizabeth for over 70 years and a great servant to this country. He died aged 99 which is a grand old age in anyone's book but still tragic for his family and friends, and for many in our country who admired him and what he's done. Last weekend, his funeral was held at Windsor Castle, and despite a number of branches of the military being represented at the castle on the day, the funeral itself was a pared-down, simple service, with only 30 mourners as allowed under the government's COVID restrictions. This in itself was slightly surreal, But there were also no crowds of onlookers, no international politicians or any other guests, and of course, no wake afterwards. In fact, the royal family have had to hold the funeral under the restrictions that so many grieving families have had to during the last year. So this was a royal event like no other in living history. What was similar to other events was that those who wanted to watch the funeral to share the Queen and her family's grief, or who were just mildly interested, could do so by sitting in front of their televisions, just as the nation has done since the coronation of George VI became the first televised royal event in 1937. In fact, many consider this to be the first ever televised outside broadcast event. So for over 80 years, British television viewers and those across the Commonwealth and the world have been able to watch every part of major royal events. So, almost inevitably, that made me think of how royal matters were covered on TV during the 1970s. And that's what I'm going to be looking at for the rest of this episode. There were a number of major royal events during the 1970s. In 1973, Princess Anne married the tall, dashing Captain Mark Phillips at Westminster Abbey in a ceremony watched by an estimated 100 million people worldwide. I don't actually remember much about the ceremony, other than I think we got the day off school, and I had to sit and watch it. But if you listen to our previous episode, Get Down Shep, you remember that it did inspire John Noakes and Blue Peter to make scone pizzas, a recipe which I didn't really like the look of from my Blue Peter book, but several of our listeners have contacted me to say they swear by it. I also remember watching the famous documentary Royal Family, which featured the royal family doing normal sorts of things like having a picnic or going to the shops. I remember being absolutely amazed to see the Queen asking for some sweets in the village shop in Balmoral or Sandringham or wherever it was. Surely the Queen didn't go into shops. Didn't she have as many sweets as she could ever want, being queen? 
and of course an army of servants to bring them to her whenever she wanted. It all seemed a bit, well, wrong to me, aged about seven. And I don't know whether it made me like the royal family more or less. In subsequent decades, arguments have gone on and on about the impact of that film and whether its efforts to portray the royal family as normal people backfired, as once they appeared to be normal with all the fallibility that the rest of us normal people have, then the mystique disappeared somewhat. Whether this was true or not, allegedly the Queen was not amused, and she's prevented the film from being seen in force since the late 1970s. So I think we can infer what she thought about it. For me, though, the big royal event which stands out from my childhood was the Queen's Silver Jubilee in 1977. It was perhaps the last great unifying royal occasion this country has seen, and whilst there have been plenty of other great events since, nothing will match the national sense of joy and celebration which the Silver Jubilee brought to the UK. It was also a major landmark in my relationship with television, as the event brought something into our family which we had only dreamed about until that point. A colour television. As we have mentioned many times in past episodes, I and my contemporaries spent much of the 1970s watching TV in black and white, or monochrome if you prefer. No ultra-high definition for us, just everything in dull pictures. No technicolour films no beautifully coloured landscapes, and no vivid pictures on news bulletins. In fact, for many years as a very young child, I thought that some things, particularly anything that happened a long time ago, actually happened in black and white, and that colour only came about in the time that I was born. Not logical, I know, but a view reinforced by the monochrome view of the world I had for the first 10 years of my life. But that all changed in 1977. My parents had first got a television set, as we used to call them, in 1962, so they could watch the rededication of Coventry Cathedral, which had been decimated by German bombing in the Second World War and had become a huge national symbol of peace and reconciliation. This was the same set that we had as a family once I came along later in the 60s, and it was rented, like many other people's TVs, from Radio Rentals, Britain's biggest TV rental company. As I mentioned in our episode, Early TV Memories, the whole idea seems crazy now. Why would you rent a TV rather than buy one? Well, the simple answer was that these TV sets were not very reliable, so many people rented to avoid the expense of having to call the TV repairman if something went wrong. TV repairman. Now, that's a job which probably doesn't appear in much careers guidance for school leavers nowadays. Anyway... We changed the TV set in about 1973 for from one large box with a big dial on the front to another large box, this time with buttons for controls to change the channel. And this TV had come with us when we moved from Pancake into the centre of Warrington. My sister and I longed to have a colour television, as did many of our friends. I think I may have mentioned this before, but my grandma and grandpa, my father's parents, one of the first people I ever knew who had a colour TV. It was a large TV manufactured by Pi, the Anglo-Dutch company. And when they first got it, it was a real treat to watch programmes in colour. However, not too long after they got it, it started to go a bit wrong. 
and the colours on screen started to change to the extent that everyone who appeared on the screen seemed to have green skin. My grandmother, who was obviously very proud of a colour TV, refused to admit there was anything wrong with it and actually got quite cross with us kids if we suggested that newsreaders didn't normally have green faces. So as a result, they continued to watch the pie set with green-faced people for several years afterwards, until one day my grandmother finally admitted that something wasn't quite right with the picture. 1977 had not started so well for my parents, and for my mother in particular. For the previous year or so, my other grandmother, my mother's mother, had been living with us, as often used to happen in those days, even though she had been very ill and was in decline both physically and mentally. Eventually, she went into what was then known as a geriatric hospital, where she continued to decline, and sadly she died in March of that year. Following her passing, my mother received a small inheritance, which she used some of to buy a large fridge freezer, considered the height of luxury at the time, a food processor, and a new washing machine. If you think this sounds a little unindulgent, well, you're right, but my mother was a very proud housewife and wanted some mod cons to help her do what she needed to do. My father suggested she might want to get a dishwasher, but she said no. My mother, and she was not alone as I think there were many others like her, thought that dishwashers were not good for washing dishes. And she quoted what had become an urban myth at the time, that that these dishwashing machines broke your glasses, chip your plates, and then actually you had to rinse and wash everything before putting it into the machine anyway. So it was a bit of a waste of time. No, she preferred doing the washing up herself. 20 or so years later, when she did eventually succumb to the charms of a dishwasher, she was amazed at how effective it was, and I think rather regretted her early refusal to have one. She did indulge herself a little and bought an electronic organ, which, as a keen pianist and singer, gave her years of pleasure. And the other indulgence that came our way was, yes, you've guessed it, that colour television which arrived just in time for the Silver Jubilee celebrations. I remember the day it arrived, like yesterday. I was coming home from school on the bus from Padgate with Tim Lilford, a champion swimmer on his way to training at Warrington Baths. And as I got up to get off the bus at the stop outside our house, what did I see but a radio rentals van standing outside on the driveway? I immediately knew what was happening and ran into the house and into the room where the TV engineer was setting up the set. And there it was, showing its picture in full colour glory. And if that wasn't exciting enough in itself, I also saw that there was a remote control as well. Again, especially for some of our younger listeners who sometimes think I make some of this up, most of my generation grew up without a remote control for the TV, meaning that every time you wanted to change channel, or even turn the sound up or down, someone had to walk over to the TV and do it themselves, manually. At that point, my days as family channel changer, being the youngest in the family, were over. Once the excitement of seeing the set and the accompanying two-button remote control, one for volume, one for channel, had worn off, I sat down and watched my first TV show on my family's own colour TV. And I remember what it was to this day. Two, three, 
I'm sorry to say that my first program wasn't one of my favourites, like Scooby-Doo or Wacky Races. It wasn't even an educational show like Blue Peter or a big sporting event. No, it was Touche Turtle, one of a long stream of very cheaply made, unmemorable cartoon shows from Hanna-Barbera, which padded out the BBC's children's schedules in the 1970s. Oh, well. Anyway, let's get back to the Silver Jubilee, shall we? The whole of 1977 was set aside as a time for celebrating the Jubilee. And it wasn't just one day of national celebrations on the 7th of June. And let's face it, even though we, as young children, were largely oblivious to what was going on in the grown-up world, our country needed something to cheer us up. But the 70s hadn't been that great for the UK. Following on from three-day weeks, minor strikes, troubles in Northern Ireland. The collapse of the British economy in 1976 needed an emergency bailout for the International Monetary Fund. meant that by 1977, we were all desperately looking forward to something to celebrate. And we got it. There was a whole year of events. The Queen travelled across the country, visiting as many places as possible. Indeed, she even visited Warrington, but unfortunately that wasn't until 1979, but I guess better late than never. Lots of new amenities were built and named in the Queen's honour. So many towns and villages have still got Jubilee Fields or Jubilee Pavilions. It was a great reason to try and be cheerful and to help to raise spirits after what had been a rather grim few years. In Padgate, on the local playing field, Bennett's Wreck, a brand new Silver Jubilee Pavilion was built for local sports clubs, and it was a great addition to the village. Although I do remember it was, like so many other buildings at the time, built in solid concrete, so it resembled something from the Soviet Union. And it was in that very building that I was proud to represent Padgate CV School in the Silver Jubilee Schools Quiz Challenge. Now, as regular listeners know, I like a quiz. And this was an early example of my being able to show my competitive streak. Of course, my team won. And the Silver Jubilee quiz trophy, which I remember was quite an impressive one, went to sit in the trophy cabinet in my headmaster's smoky office, where, for all I know now, it may still be today. In the run-up to the big day itself, the 7th of June having been decreed as the Jubilee commemoration day, when we all had a day off school, It was a bit confusing for a child because the Queen had been crowned on the 2nd of June 1953, but that was only 24 years beforehand. So it had to be explained to us countless times that the Queen had in fact become Queen in February 1952, when her father George VI had died. So all in all, a bit illogical for an inquisitive 10-year-old. At school, we had more projects on the Jubilee. We always seem to be doing projects in primary school, but never mind. Ours was about Padgate's coronation celebrations of 1952, and the school walls were filled with old photos and reminiscences of what happened in 1952, which seemed like ancient history to me and my friends. However, just to put that into context, today's equivalent year was 1996, which I still consider to be just a few years ago, It's amazing what age does to your perspective. We were also all given a jubilee crown by the local council and a commemorative mug. 
Can you imagine that happening today? I still have my Jubilee crown, and I had a look online just before this broadcast to see if it might be worth anything. Well, the sad answer is, like many of my other 70s artefacts, no. You can buy one on eBay for 99 pence. Never mind. And what of television? How did the TV bring us together for this big event? I remember the BBC ran a programme called Royal Heritage with Hugh Weldon, which looked at the history of royal palaces and art. My parents made me watch this programme against my wishes, because as the idea of it sounded really dull to me, but I did find it fascinating as it recounted the chequered history of how the royal family had influenced life in Britain. Then on to the day itself, how did TV cover it? As I've often remarked, The television was a unifying force in the UK of the 70s, where families gathered together to watch special events and programmes together. No video recording, no streaming, no live pause. If you missed it, you missed it. So let's take a look at the Radio Times, which I've got here for Tuesday, the 7th of June, 1977, and see what was on. By the way, the cover price is 12 pence. Early on, with various educational programmes from the Open University, before Mary Mungo and Midge at 8.40, followed by Boss Cat at 8.55, known as Top Cat by everybody, but it was renamed by the BBC due to legal action by the manufacturers of Top Cat Cat Food, whatever that was. Oh, then we've got Barbar the Elephant, which I always loved. And after that, from 9.45 onwards... It was all about live coverage of the Jubilee celebrations, commentated on by the sugary-voiced Tom Fleming, taking us from Buckingham Palace to St Paul's Cathedral for a special service of celebration. After that, we went on to the Guildhall, where the Queen addressed the Commonwealth, before you could settle down to watch the film version of Black Beauty at 3.45 if you needed a break. In our house, we had a special lunch, which I think included my first time eating smoked salmon and my first small taste of champagne. Now, this was a big deal. Unlike today, where the pop of a Prosecco cork could be heard celebrating the opening of an envelope, the drinking of champagne was a rarity. Fortunately, I rather liked it, and my intake of champagne increased the older I got. Our lunch was eaten on our knees, again a bit of a treat, watching the celebrations after which we went to the local community centre, where they were having a big street party with sandwiches, 
jelly and ice cream, and lots of races and games. It was all really good fun, and brought together friends and neighbours in a common cause for a bit of innocent entertainment and celebration. I didn't know it then, but I think that was the last time I'd experienced a national celebration like that, where our country seemed so at ease with itself. After the street party, the evening continued with more London-based celebrations, witnessed by my family and the rest of the nation on television. A river pageant was followed by one of the most spectacular firework displays I had ever seen, which I suppose wasn't that remarkable as, for me, bonfire night consisted of my father taking one standard fireworks Roman candle out of a biscuit box, lighting the blue touch paper and standing well back until that went off and was replaced by the next standard firework from the biscuit box. And of course, this is where the new colour TV really came into its own. I don't know whether the fireworks were that great or not, but in our living room, on the screen of our new colour TV, it was like nothing else I'd ever seen. Nineteen seventy-seven was a great year. I was ten years old, a fantastic age to be, and the Jubilee marked a great national celebration. The year was also marked by lots of great sporting achievements, many of which I witnessed on our new colour television. To a young sports addict, it was a year when spectacular sporting feats happened, as if to honour Her Majesty. In the spring, a very special horse went down in history in the Grand National. As they come to the last fence in the National, and Red Rum with a tremendous chance of winning his third National, he jumps it clear of Jack Stone Boy. He's getting the most tremendous cheer from the crowd. They're willing him home now. The 12-year-old Red Rum being preceded only by loose horses, being chased by Church Stone Boy. I catch him as moved into third in the Pill Darling Force. They're coming to the elbow. There's a furlong now between Red Rum and his third Grand National Triumph. And he's coming up to the line to win it like a fresh horse in great style. His hat's off and a tremendous reception. You've never heard my like it at Liverpool. Red Run wins the national. In motorsport, James Hunt won the British Grand Prix. And in flat racing, the Queen herself won the Oaks with Dunfermline, just a few days before the celebrations themselves. And in football, my beloved Manchester United thwarted Liverpool's dreams of treble in the FA Cup final. McElroy to Nichols. And now to Coppel. Hughes with the leap, but he's beaten in the air. Greenock trying to get in behind Tommy Smith and might succeed in doing so. Then Liverpool made history a few days later by winning the European Cup. Jerry Jones outside. And then to cap it all, Virginia Wade won Wimbledon in front of the Queen in her Jubilee year 
and I don't think she's actually ever been back since, but don't tell anyone, before England regained the ashes later in the summer. All of these brought the nation together even further, and all of these events were shared on television. The box in the corner of the living room brought our nation together after a hard decade, in a way which has never happened since, and I don't think will happen again. It's a year which will always live in my memory, not least because it was the time my monochrome window on the world was lit up with a blaze of colour, thanks to the new TV from Radio Rentals. If you've got special memories of the Silver Jubilee, or getting your first colour television, or indeed anything else you'd like to discuss, you can share them on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com, tweet at 70stvchildhood, or you can email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. That's all for now. Take care and see you again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood.